Welcome to this episode of C-Suite Interviews, where leaders from across the business spectrum share ideas about how to help organizations thrive. Whether working in the nonprofit, public, or private sectors, you'll hear tips from emerging and veteran leaders that are sure to enlighten and inspire. If you're ready, here's the host of C-Suite Interviews, John Janklays. Welcome to this episode of C-Suite Interviews. I'm your host, John Janklays. In this episode, we interview Howard Bahar. Howard is probably best known as the president of Starbucks North America and Starbucks International. Uh, Howard helped grow the franchise from just 28 stores in Seattle, Washington to over 15,000 stores during his 21 years at Starbucks. Howard is also an author. His first book, It's Not About the Coffee, Lessons on Putting People First from a Life at Starbucks, and his most recent book, The Magic Cup. This is a business parable about a leader and a team and the power of putting people first and focusing on values. I just finished reading the book and I would highly recommend it as a great read for a leadership team to read together. I first met Howard at Claremont Graduate School during Peter Drucker Day. We shared the stage speaking about leadership to the alumni and faculty. Howard was the keynote speaker. We met in the green room and he graciously agreed to do this interview. I think you're really going to enjoy listening to Howard's tips on leadership, his career, and the lessons learned. If you're ready, here's the interview with Howard. Hi, Howard. Thanks for joining the show today. Thanks, John, for having me. Yeah, you know, it was a couple months ago, you and I were sharing the stage at the Drucker Business School talking to the alumni. You were the keynote speaker and... Uh, I tell you what, you had the audience and me mesmerized, and I thought if our audience could listen to you, it'd be great. So thanks for uh, for taking the time to talk with us today. That, that was a fun opportunity, wasn't it? I really have a lot of respect for that school, for that university. Yeah, it was. You know, maybe a good place to start is an introduction of just kind of your professional work experience and then how you made the transition to Starbucks and where you were there for 21 years. If you could do that, that'd be great. Sure. Well, you know, you're talking to a guy without a college degree, so we got to get that out of the way first, you know. <laughs> I was not a great student, but uh, I was actually, uh, I was pretty good at beer, and, and I got better at scotch. I had a, by the time I got out of community college, I, I got really good at single malt scotches. And um, so not that I was a big drinker, but I always like to use that as a joke. Yeah. Um, but um, I, uh, I started working when I was 13 years old. My uh, my father had a small mom-and-pop grocery store, and he actually had retired when I was about 12. But my brother and my brother-in-law were in the home furnishings industry, and so I started working in one of their stores, you know, basically dusting furniture and cleaning furniture and delivering furniture and learning how to sell furniture. And, and then from then on, I had a bunch of part-time jobs through school and doing different things, uh, working for federated department stores and for Nordstrom, et cetera. And... Uh, then when I uh, was going to college, my brother had a furniture store that I used to sell furniture at, and I was, you know, I was 100% on commission, and that's when I learned that you you get what you kill, you know, you eat what you kill, so to speak, and yeah, and that taught me to be self-sufficient, and I was making more money at that time than people were that were graduating from college with four-year degrees, and. So I decided, well, what am I, what am I going to school for? And I just went to work in the furniture business, and I stayed in it, the furniture industry, for about 25 years, uh, a number of years in my family's business, but most of it was in, in other companies, uh, federated department stores, 
a company called Grand Tree Furniture Rental, et cetera, and, I, and a company called Levitt's Furniture. And I kind of learned how to work in those businesses because when you're working for public companies, you know, it's kind of take no prisoners kind of, uh, at least at those, in those days. And I learned how to, how to work hard. And, but I had some built-in advantages that other people didn't have. I, because I had worked in families' businesses, I knew what it meant to really own a business, and I, and I had been in all parts of the families' business, from, from you know, from the operation side to the sales side, and I watched my father and my brother and brother-in-law how they hired, how they fired people, and how they did advertising, and so I had this innate understanding of what it took to make a business work, and I was so I was pretty good in those in those public company businesses because most people hadn't had those kind of experiences. Hmm. So I was, uh, I worked in the furniture business until I was about um, 33 years old and one of the guys that I had reported to in a company called Grand Tree Furniture Rental went on to uh, be CEO of a land development business and he attracted a bunch of us that were working with him so I went into that business and it was consumer land development and I was in charge of operations. That company got in trouble, and I I put out my put up my hand to be president of that company. Little did I know how much trouble it was in. So uh, you know I got the job, and you always got to be careful what you ask for because you might get it. And the first week I'm in the job, I realized that I was going to have to go through a bunch of layoffs, and I didn't even know what the word layoffs meant at that time. And so I got through it, and I we were in the workout group at the Bank of Boston, and so every day they were calling me. I didn't know how much cash I had in the bank, and of course they were bleeding the cash out of the business. Finally, we sold the business, and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do when I grew up. And I was 44 years old, and I started looking. I said, "Well, you know, I'm going to do what my family did. I'm going to buy a small business or start a small business." So I started looking at small business to buy. And along the way, I met this young guy named Howard Schultz, who had had been able to buy Starbucks. It was a tiny little company, about six stores. And he'd put together some local venture money and bought the company, and he was looking for somebody to run operations. But I didn't really fit what he wanted. He he had this long list of things that he wanted. You know, he wanted somebody that had a college degree, number one, that had food service background. And I didn't fit hardly anything until he got to number 10 on the list, and that was could I breathe. That was the only <laughs> thing I qualified for is that I could breathe. But over about a year's period of time, we went through a dance, and he decided to an extend an invitation to me to join Starbucks, and I decided to extend that invitation, and it was the best decision I made in my life. I didn't know it at the time, but I was really trying to escape corporate life. This was a, only 28 stores when I started at Starbucks, so I never, none of us had any idea it would turn out to be what it has become. But it filled my soul every day, and I loved the business. It was a social business, and it wasn't really about coffee. It was about people. and. That was my primary skill set, was people, and uh, and so that's what I brought to the business. And you know, so you know, 21 years later, you know, I retired after spending 12 years on the board, and uh, basically uh, running the domestic business and starting the international business. So, a great a great journey. I want to come back to your experience on the board, but before we do, it just struck me. So it's from from six or 28 stores to over 15,000, you're there 21 years. This is like two stores a day for 21 years straight. That's the way it was. And it got even more. There was one year when we opened 2,500 stores. So that was about, you know, uh, eight stores a day. Huh. 
you know, Howard, I know you're, you're a people-first kind of a servant leadership person. How did you keep that philosophy intact when you're growing at that kind of rate? You know, it wasn't easy. It, uh, you can have best of intentions, but when you're growing that fast, you know, things have a way of getting out of control. And certainly we went through that, and we blew up a few times, and we made a number of mistakes. But we always were focused on people because we understood intrinsically that that's what made it work. You know, when you think about coffee, you know, coffee is basically about conversations, either having a conversation with yourself, having a conversation with another human being, or, or having a meeting, or whatever it happens to be. It's, it's a gatherer of people. People use coffee as a grease you know, to grease conversations. And so, you know, we understood that. And, and the truth of the matter is the three guys that had responsibility, although we all came from different areas. Howard came from a very poor family, raised in Brooklyn, New York. Orrin Smith, who came from a poor family, single mother, head of household out of Chehalis, Washington, a farming community. And I came from two parents that never let me forget, forget their their lives and how they had to live through the depression and so you know we wanted to build a company that was about serving others and we wanted to do it together with other people so you know we had health care benefits for everybody uh, if you work 20 hours a week or more all part-time workers we had equity for everybody even before we went public and so that drove us and we just kept that at the forefront that it was about people and uh, when we did make mistakes you know, we we had check and balance systems. We had a, uh, a program called Mission Review where all of our people, every month they would get a little card in their paycheck and it would say, and the question was, have we done anything to break our covenant with you? Those weren't the exact words we used, but, but that's what we asked. Have we done anything not in keeping with the mission statement? And, of course, they told us when we didn't. And, and we tried to change and, and make adjustments as we went along. I mean, we weren't perfect. We made lots of mistakes. But we always had a way of coming back to the thing that mattered. And it was just keeping focus on that. And, you know, I had this saying that the people were my day job, the business was my night job. And that's how I kind of ran my life. You know, I share that, uh, that experience with you, too. In my role, nothing like yours, but still, a lot of my thought is, you know, when it's quiet at night is when I do my thinking and my work. And, I try to be available as soon as the doors open and we start the work day that I'm available for our people to have conversations, to talk, uh, to work through problems, to get excited, to cry a little bit when things don't go our way. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I, I get that notion of yeah, that kind of cadence and that kind of rhythm uh, to the business. That's yeah. what makes it work. At the end yeah. of the day, look, people don't care what you say. They want to know what you, they watch what you do. And mm -hmm. when you say it's about the people, then it better be about people. And that means, you know, that you better be standing up for them first. And so, you know, that's what I do. Yeah. So when you made your transition for, from being president to being on the board and serving, I think you said, 12 years there before leaving Starbucks, what was that transition like? And what was kind of your mindset when you're sitting on the board? What's the value you had that you're trying to bring when you're sitting on the board? Well, you know, I, I will tell you that it was it wasn't easy uh, being. I was an you know I was part of the company, so I was a member of the leadership team, management team, and was on the board at the same time. And then when I retired, I stayed on the board, and um, you know it was there was some conflicts for me because I knew a lot, and you know, but but I was no longer on the management team, so 
I had to recognize what my role was. And my role was, you know, to represent shareholders when I was on the board. But also represent shareholders, I thought, in the context of it was still about the people. And so holding ourselves accountable and making sure as a board member that, that I understood that there had to be an understanding that we had a lot of stakeholders. It wasn't just shareholders. And, and that wasn't always easy to do because there was always pressure from shareholders. But I tried to keep that in mind all the time. And probably my primary role on the board was that role of making sure that the rest of the board uh, kept true to the idea that we're here to serve people. So obviously you've thought an awful lot about people, and you wrote about it in, in two of your books, um, yeah. The Magic Cup, and It's Not About the Coffee. And by the way, I just finished the book, The Magic Cup, and what a what a fantastic way of telling a story about leadership and what it's all about. How did, how did you come with that very creative approach to uh, sharing those concepts? Well, it, it, it came out of uh, just, you know, some wanting to – tell a story in a different way. I wanted to have a book that was about leadership and values, but wasn't just a how-to book or here's my set of experiences, but was kind of a creative journey. And uh, and so that's what I did. And it took a long time because I really didn't have the skills to do that. You know, it wasn't like I had been a writer all my life. And um, so, you know, I, I just started working on it. It took like four years to do it, and I got a lot of help. But I actually, I, I, I try to think about, there's a lot of truth in that book. You know, it's not just a book on fiction. A lot of the things that took place in that book actually did take place kind of in a, another way, not in such a, a Harry Potter-esque way that it is in the book, but, you know, layoffs and um, how the companies get caught up in technology and how, how there were leaders and organizations that I worked at that weren't true to people and cared more about themselves. And so that was all in that story. But I, I was trying to capture that in a, in a creative way. And I, I kind of call it where Harry Potter meets business and values. <laughs> I like it. I like the way the book ends, too, where there's a tool in the back for a group discussion for yeah. a management team to read it yeah. and kind of go through the key principles that you're, that you're laying out for the team. Thanks. Yeah. So when you're not at work, what do you like to do? Well, I, you know, my life's work is about people. You know, my mission statement is to nurture and inspire the human spirit every day, beginning with myself first and then for others. And I say self first because I've learned that I have to take care of myself first physically and emotionally if I'm going to help anybody else. But I live my life like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know I've had a good day when I've done something for somebody else. Most of the time, it's things that people don't even know about. I have this game I play with myself, you know. Every day I have to pick up a piece of paper off the street in Seattle where I live. And the good part is I live downtown. There's an endless supply of inventory. <laughs> but, I, but I, you know, it's doing little things for people every day and uh, trying to make the world a better place in some way. Sometimes I get to do things like this. Sometimes I give, give speeches. Sometimes I coach. Whatever it happens to be, you know. And, you know, it's... You know, you never know in life whether you really have helped somebody or not. You know, I pick up a piece of paper, that's easy for me to see. But the rest of it, you know, only only that human being can tell you, and it's only over some period of time. And sometimes you hear back, but most of the time you don't. You just have to trust, you have to trust uh, the world. You know, you have to trust nature, that what you do has value. And 
hopefully if you don't, people will tell you. Yeah. That's you know, I'm only now. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm only now beginning to experience that a little bit now that I've been doing this for 30 years when people come back and say, hey, thanks for helping me up and helping me, you know, through uh, learning about the business and being open to that. And, you know, now I find I've got a, a group a group of like-minded people to share ideas about and a network. And, and uh, so those that do come back, as you're saying, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty powerful stuff. At the end of the day, you know, I say, I, you know, everybody asks that question, well, what, what is it you want at the end of your days? And I said, well, here's how I want to be evaluated. I want to be evaluated by what I did or didn't do for people. So people have a right to criticize me for what I didn't do and to, tell, and to compliment me or evaluate me based on what I did do. And so at the end of the day, there's a whole bunch of pluses and minuses that add up. And so as long as I have been in the plus side for what, half what I did for people, then I'll be happy. Is that how you deal with your failures or when you come up short is knowing, hey, it's both sides of the ledger that, that we're looking at here. Is that how yeah. you approach it? Yeah, yeah, you have okay. to because, look, you don't live your life without screwing up, period. You know, yeah. I mean, we're emotional beings. And, you know, I have, I have my good days and I have my bad days. And some days I don't live up to my own expectations. I don't live up to my mission statement. And uh, of nurturing and inspiring the human spirit. And that's not only with myself, but with family or with friends or acquaintances. And I try to fix that, but sometimes I, you know, I'm, I don't realize it and I have broken trust with somebody. But, uh, but at the end of the day, I hope that there have been more pluses and minuses. And, and that's how I try to live my life. And I'm, I'm, I'm really aware, you know, I'm not, I, I have good antenna. And so I know for the most part when I've screwed up and I try to clean it up and fix yep. it and own it. And that's yeah. all we can do, right? Yeah. That sounds like that's the advice you might give somebody who's aspiring to be more, do more as an executive is yeah. see things they really are. And what else would yeah. you tell them? And Well, and be open. You know, you know, probably every boss has, has said that they have an open-door policy. You can come talk to them anytime. problem is, is most of us don't really mean that, you know. Somebody comes in and we're busy and we kind of roll our eyes and say, can't you see I'm busy? We may not say it, but, but you know, it's it's kind of like that and and but you know we've got to pay attention to people you know we have to give people our time and our our real listening skills not just the things that with our ears but with our whole heart with our whole being and you know we have to our you know what's the number one thing that we do as leaders is help our people be, become better human beings and to grow as individuals that's about all you can do you know and if you do that, if you try to do that as best as you can and you get, whoops, and you get a bunch of successes, uh, you know, then that's good. But, uh, you know, sometimes you can't and uh, or you don't. But I, I think for the most part I have in my life, and that's what I want to evaluate myself on. And that's so fair. if you're a leader trying to figure out what really matters is help your people become better people and grow them as human beings. You know, and help them develop their skills, and and do that with love and caring in your heart. So, Howard, when you weren't at the office and doing your your missions work, I, I know that you like sailing. That's a passion of yours. Tell us a little bit about that. How did you get started with it? What does the current version of that passion look like now? Tell well, us about I was that. I was actually not a sailor. I was a powerboater, a stink potter. They the sailboaters ah. call us stink potters. But uh, <laughs> I love boating, and I did it for thirty five years, and. I, uh, we would go back and forth every summer almost to Alaska or up into Canada with our boat and uh, spend 
since then when I was working and I didn't have that much time, maybe a couple weeks during the summer, but I used to do a lot of weekend trips. But then when I retired, you know, we might spend two or three months on our boat. And, um, finally, I had a stroke a couple of years ago and I decided that boating, it was time for me to give up boating. And uh, and so I, I sold, we sold our boat and we bought a house on the water. Then I bought myself a little boat so I could go out in Puget Sound and do clamming and crabbing and fishing. And, and so I still do that. And fortunately I, fortunately, I still have friends that have boats. And one of my friends bought a big boat, so I like that. Last summer we went to Alaska with him and, and his wife on that boat, and we had a great time. And So I still love the water, I guess you'd say. And I love being out there, and in that salt air, there's nothing quite like it. And I grew up with it, and I, and I want to die doing it. You know, I don't, it doesn't mean I want to die on the water, but that's how I want to live my life. Yeah, I'm a Southern California boy, and uh, being close to the water and having my feet in the sand uh, from time to time, it rejuvenates me. I, I need to get back to it, so um, yeah, I under, it. Uh, understand completely. And then I have six grandchildren, so they keep me busy. <laughs> and, uh, from 15 down to 8, and it's fun to watch them grow out, grow up, and then I have a great partner named Lynn in my life, and we have a great marriage, and and uh, we're a good team. That's what it's all about. Yep. Well, Howard, thank you so much for taking time with us today and to have our listeners get to know you a little bit and uh, be able to find the rest of your professional treasures that are left in your two books and, and also engage you in your public speaking. Um, like I said, uh, where, where we met and watching you take the stage and watch the audience just uh, totally uh, keyed in to what you were saying. It was a fabulous event. and and bridging to today's conversation. Just thank you so much. And well, John, thank you thanks very much for time. the opportunity. I really yeah. appreciate it, and, uh, and uh, I hope to run into you again soon. I hope so, too. Howard, thank you so much. Bye for now. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of C-Suite Interviews. A couple of notes. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, you can show your support for these podcasts by going to iTunes and rating the episode that you listened to with five stars. And please tell others about the C-Suite interviews and the CEOcorner.com, where you can find resources such as articles, tools, and videos to help all aspects of leadership development. That's it for now. Thank you for listening to this episode.